So we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 5 today. We're going to finish. It's also printed on page 7 in your bulletin. And um, so Nehemiah uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. Uh, let us give our attention to God's inerrant word. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twelfth uh, year to the no, sorry, to the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, uh, twelve years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord, or fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table a hundred and fifty men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. And that was prepared... At my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is recorded for us. We would be um, completely in the dark, having no idea about you except from creation. We know there's a great God, but not of our Redeemer, Christ. We would not know of all the stories of how you worked with men like Nehemiah to accomplish your purposes. Father, I plead with you that you would use this very text for these very people's blessing. Lord, please use me as your humble servant as I bring your word to them. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, even as I preach, be pure. I need the help of your spirit to do this, my Lord. And so I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. I'm curious as we begin, if you've ever been laid off from a job, have you ever lost a job before? I've had it happen several times in my life. I had a a career before this uh, in IT, and uh, I wanted to share the story of the first time. Um, I graduated with a degree from Virginia Tech with graphic, of graphic design. I interned at a company. I went on to work there. And then about a year later, uh, there was a small uh, web design company in Blacksburg there, and uh, I was called into the owner's office, and the conversation was meandering. I couldn't figure out where I was going, and then finally I realized, I know where this is going. And uh, she said, you know, we're going to downsize our graphic design department from three down to one. I wasn't the one, and, um, and so I lost my job that day. Um, if you ever had that happen, you know it's kind of scary. So I went, prayed, tried to regroup and figure out, and I remember vividly, I was living in a house, I rented a house with some other Christian guys, uh, still college students. I went to one of them, and um, he had borrowed, I don't know, three dollars from me or five dollars, and I said, I need that money back. <laughs> And uh, the Lord convicted me that um, uh, I, was, I was scared. And that, that even just asking for that money, I was scared about money. Often, if you've ever been there, you know when you lose your job, you can be a little bit anxious about money. And, and so God used that. 
what I didn't realize was that um, we were talking about that um, stewardship this year. I forgot that I was a steward. And so God had given to me through this job, and, and I could have confidence he would give to me through a new job, and he did. Um, but if you've had an experience like that, you might remember those feelings. Well, you remember last week, we had an economic crisis, far worse than what I've ever experienced or probably anything you have. Remember, it was so terrible, they were mortgaging their land, they were selling their children as slaves just to pay the taxes and to put food on the table. It was a really bad situation. You might remember the Jewish leaders, how did they respond? They, they saw an opportunity to make a buck. And so they were um, lending money with exorbitant interest. Remember, it was a terrible situation. Nehemiah put a stop to it, right? So our passage today, we've actually jumped forward 12 years. You see that at the beginning of the passage. From the, um, so why did he, does he jump forward 12 years? Usually when you're telling a story, you don't do that. But sometimes in a movie you might see this. Haven't you seen where it says, you know, 12 years later, you know, across the bottom of the screen, for some thematic purpose or that it, for the storytelling it helped. So why here? The reason is, is that it, it does relate, relate thematically. It is the, a similar situation. So in the first part of chapter 5, we had economic crisis, everyone taking advantage of it, put a stop to it. In this situation, he's saying, I didn't take the food allowance, the food tax, to put food on my table. Right? They, they have a heavy burden, and so he is contrasting himself with the Jewish leaders. Do you see that? That's why we've jumped forward 12 years. Chapter 6, we're going to jump back in our narrative, back 12 years. Um, but this is where we are here. Um, I don't know if we have any math people here. Um, kids, you might have learned this in school. Um, have you heard of the transitive property of equality? Or some just called the transitive property. Um, I'll tell you, it might ring a bell. Adults, this might ring a bell once I tell you. Oh, I remember that from a number of years ago. Um, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals There you go. See, you remember. Okay, transitive property. If you look at your outline, we have a little bit of transitive property going on here. Um, look at point two first. So point two is the fear of God, A, results in good stewardship. Good stewardship, point one and three, result in what? Generosity and hospitality. Okay, you see the transitive property there? I thought about reordering my points, but I decided to just leave them as we find in the passage. So we're going to go through the passage in order, even though you kind of see now the transitive property is kind of mixed up there. Hope you followed that. And maybe, kids, it'll help you in math. Who knows? All right, point one. Um, good stewardship results in generosity. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. He says, moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. We'll pause there. Okay, we don't know. Was he, um, when he first came, was he already appointed? Possible. Also possible, he, there, he went there, they rebuilt the wall, we'll find out next chapter, it's 52 days, super fast, um, and then he goes back, and then he gets appointed governor, and he comes back again. We don't know which, but he's governor now. He's been appointed by Persia as the governor of Jerusalem. Okay, so that's important. We already did our dates from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. He's the king in Susa. He was the one he appealed to originally, you might remember that. He says, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors, the guys that came before him, <clears throat> what did they do? They laid heavy burdens on the people. They took for them the daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Now, we don't still use shekels. By my math, it's 11 grams, which 40 of them is about a pound. 
Okay, so it's about a pound of silver for every person for every day. That's a significant tax, right? You would really felt that if you were a Jew in Israel and you're paying 40 shekels, a pound of silver every day. Um, this was a tax. He had a right to it for the food tax, uh, for the food allowance, as they call it. You see, it says, um, even in verse 15, even their servants lorded it over the people. I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. We'll come back to the fear of the Lord. You know, one thing about um, looking down on people, it's contagious, right? So the, the governors were doing it. Even their servants were making the same error, right? They're looking down on the Jews, and um, that's bad. Okay, so he's not like them. He's not doing that because of the fear of the Lord. I read this interesting article. It's quite dated, um, but still true. It was from Wall Street Journal some years ago. And it says that oftentimes people are nicer as they climb the corporate ladder. And when they get to the top, they lose their minds. <laughs> I want to read a quote uh, from this. He says, one um, business professor concludes, it is an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting like fools. They flirt inappropriately. They tease in a hostile fashion. They become totally impulsive. Some have even compared the feeling of power to brain damage. I thought that was funny. And noting that people with lots of authority tend to behave like neurological patients with damaged frontal lobes. Your frontal lobe is the part of your brain that enables empathy and decision making. Even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. It's interesting how when people rise to power, sometimes they lose their minds. And so Nehemiah, in contrast, didn't do that, right? He had a right to demand this tax. Yes, they were in an economic crisis, but he had to put food on his table. So he had every right to do this, but he doesn't do this. You know, for another contrast, I want to contrast not only Nehemiah with the other governors, I want to contrast him with Artaxerxes the king. We talked about this last week, if you were here. If not, I'll catch up to speed. Um, but uh, do you remember when, we talked last week, Alexander the Great came and defeated Persia. He came into Susa, this is where Nehemiah came from, and what did he find there? He found Artaxerxes' storehouses of gold. I mean, he'd been collecting taxes for a long time. Remember how much taxes he had? 270 tons of gold. Remember that? 1,200 tons of silver. That's a lot. And kids, if you know about tons, that is a lot. So, you know, how much good was this doing Artaxerxes? Definitely not much good after Alexander the Great came, because he was gone. But, I mean, you can't use that much. He's just st stockpiling all of this treasure. You know, Nehemiah, in contrast to that, is actually using his treasure. He's likely a probably wealthy man. He has enough money of his own resources to feed. What was he feeding him? Remember, one ox, six sheep, birds, wine. That's a lot of food. Think about that. How many ox is that a year? 365 ox a year. It's a lot of food. But he, ha he's, he has the money to do it. He says, I'm just going to spend my own money to feed these people. I'm not going to take these taxes. Artaxerxes, remember, in one year collected, I think it was 2 million um, gold coins in taxes. What good did all that? He, just, he stockpiled all of it. You've probably heard the line, um, you can't take it with you. Ever heard that line? Or the, the uh, other line, you never see a U-Haul trailer being pulled behind a hearse. It's true. I've never seen one. You probably never have either. You can't take it with you. It didn't do Artaxerxes any good. All of that, that wealth that he had acquired and amassed. 
Nehemiah is a great example of generosity, isn't he? Matthew 6 says it well. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I guarantee you Artaxerxes' heart was impacted by all the taxes he collected. Right? His treasure was there in Susa. Nehemiah's, he was giving it away. You see, when, when your treasure is not in your stuff, it enables you to be generous. This is being a good steward because you realize all of it belongs to God anyway. Nehemiah knew this. And so he could be generous because God had um, stewarded, given stuff to him that he was to be a steward of with other people. Okay, you see that? All right, now the second point is what motivated that, right? He was generous, he was a good steward, but what motivated that? So secondly, the fear of God results in good stewardship. We saw that in verse 15. Look again. So he talks about the former governors, but he said, I didn't do that. I didn't collect my 40 shekels. He says, um, I did not do so because of what? The fear of God. Kids, do you know what that is? We usually use the word fear only in a negative sense. This is not using it in the negative sense. Scripture often uses it in the positive sense. It is to stand in awe. Remember um, Moses before the burning bush? Moses, when God appeared to him in the mountain, man, he was terrified. Man, God's scary. When you're a human and you're before the living God, God is awesome. He strikes awe into those who are in his presence. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 9, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some have called this the number one characteristic of a Christian. The fear of God. That you would have an awe in you that there's a God. Ecclesiastes ends for those who love Ecclesiastes. The book ends, the end of the matter, this is chapter 12. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. The fear of God. Nehemiah feared God. He knew there was a God. Kids, do you behave better when there's an adult present or not? I bet you probably behave better when there's a grown-up around, right? Kids, you do this in school, right? When the teacher's in the room, for the teachers, you know this, that when you leave the room, the kids don't behave as well. Why is this? This is it's not a unique phenomenon to you or your generation. It did it with every generation. It's because there is a felt sense of accountability. I see that grown-up looking at me, right? Do you see God looking at you? Do you know that you're always in the presence of an awesome God? It really impacts how we live, doesn't it? The fear of God. What kind of God? You remember the beginning of the service? I said that God is omnipotent. Remember what that means? All-powerful. God is all-powerful. He's not only all-powerful, He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. Is that your God? Now, I don't mean theoretically, of course you agree with that, but do we live like that? That's always where the rubber meets the road, is how we actually live. I'll talk about that more in a minute. Do we live like God is very aware? And so, you think back about this, as we think of um, good stewardship, there's a connection, right? If you realize that the fear of, the, of God, you realize that God is present, and He sees all, then how we deal with the stuff that he entrusted to us, there's a connection, right? 
You will be a better steward if you realize that God actually is present. He's not like Santa. He's not like a grandparent who just spoils you, right? He is a God who actually holds you accountable. Do you remember last week we talked about authority? We talked a lot about authority and how important it is for authority to require obedience. Remember parents? We talked about that. Requiring obedience. And that if you don't, the, what's obeyed is what's actually enforced. Bosses, you know this. It's the rules that you enforce that are obeyed. And so it is with God. Is God actually hold us accountable? Of course, don't forget the gospel. It's not that we're saved by these things, right? It's that because he's, he's extended his grace to us. But he does hold us accountable. And, and so as I said a moment ago, I want to contrast functional theology from theoretical theology. Your functional theology is how you actually live. Right? You know how you actually, what your real theology is by your actions. You can tell me whatever you want about what you believe, but it's actually what drives your actions. See, that's what matters. Right? If theoretical theology, it does not make much difference. Satan is not intimidated by your theoretical theology. It's your practical theology. It's your functional theology. It's what you actually live by that matters. That's why when someone says, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. You, you, you want to keep talking, don't you? Because you're like, well, lots of people say that in America. But what does that actually mean? It's how we actually live that shows. It doesn't save us. Your good works don't save you, but it does show, just like a tree, shows the fruit, whether, it's, whether it is alive. So our real theology, not just our theoretical. Well, let's talk about the menu here for a second. What was the menu at Nehemiah's house? So he had one ox, six choice sheep, six birds, and wine every 10 days. This is enough to feed hundreds of people. This is amazing. So you would think, hey, it's very legitimate to collect this tax. But you see, it's not only fear of God. In verse 18, you see another motive. Look at verse 18. What's another motive that he has? Do you see it there? It's at the end of the verse. He says, yet... For all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service would have been too heavy on the people. You remember we talked about neurological patients called CEOs, right? That they sometimes forget that they aren't having compassion for the people. Nehemiah still cared about the people. He said, you know what, if I do that, I have a right to do that. It would help me pay for this ox and all this stuff I'm feeding, right? Because he's a governor. It's expected of him to feed all the leaders. You've ever been in a castle? They have huge tables, let me imagine. I don't know if you ever bought like half a cow, a quarter cow, whole cow. It's a lot of food. Every day, a whole ox. But he's paying for it out of his own savings because he doesn't want to be a burden to the people. He really cares about the people. I want to look at this. Oh, I want to go back for a second. The early church, you saw this. Um, in the early church, uh, Acts 2.43, right after Pentecost, remember? Kids, the Holy Spirit came down. Right? It was a pretty cool moment. And right after, this is um, Acts 2.43 says, uh, the awe or the fear came upon every soul. Same thing. The fear of God came upon them. Do you remember what happened next? How did they act with their stuff? They started being extremely generous. Anyone that need, they'd say, hey, I got an extra field. I'll sell that and I'll share it. There's a connection between the fear of God, good stewardship, which then leads with our, our transitive property, to generosity, right? So I want to look at this from another camera angle. 
Not only does the fear of God drive you to be generous, but there's something else. It's also the love of God. You know the love of God compels us to be generous? Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For the love of Christ controls us or compels us, because we are convinced of this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. When you understand the, the incredibly generous love of God for you, then you are more generous, right? So it's not only the fear of God, it's also the love of God. It, it compels us, it sends us out to be generous. God has promised to take care of all of our needs. And so then, therefore, we can be generous. Matthew 6 says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you eat or what you'll drink. Think about me when I lost my job that time. This verse, I should have read this, right? Nor about your body. What you'll put on. Is your life not more than food and your body more than clothing? Look to the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. And what does it say? God feeds them. The birds don't go hungry. Are you not much more value than they? So we have confidence that God's going to provide for all of our needs. It's a real thing. One of the things that stifles generosity is fear that you aren't going to have enough. So going back to my story, after I learned my lesson with, you know, demanding my money back from my roommate to get my five bucks, um, I sponsored a compassion child. And so this, it's a ministry where you can send a little bit of money and they'll feed a little kid in another country, right? And you can write letters back and forth. I was doing this with a kid. I think it was Ecuador. Um, and so... After being convicted of my first poor behavior, I prayed about it. And I said, you know what? I think God wants me to continue supporting this little boy. I'm not sure how this is going to work, but I'm going to continue to do it. And so that was a good moment because God was working in me that I knew he would take care of me. See, you can be generous when you have confidence that God will provide for your needs. Does that make sense? There's a connection there. Not only the fear of God, but also safety. Kids, you can be generous because you know that your parents, you've never gone hungry. Mom, make sure there's food on the table, right? And so you don't have to worry about it. It is true with your Father in heaven. None of us have to worry that God is going to take care of our needs. Of course, you have to be a good steward, right? You have to make a budget. I did. I figured out how am I going to make this work. But God will provide for us. So there's two fundamental things. See that? Fear of God, but also the trust of God. Okay, so now we look back to our final thing here. Oh, there's something else. I missed something. Look at verse 19. Now, this is an interesting verse. How do you take it? Nehemiah, this is like his memoirs. He says, remember for my good, oh my God. So it's like a prayer. All that I've done for this people. What do you think of that? Interesting, isn't it? He's asking God, remember these good things I've done. I mean, it sounds a little bit like he thinks he's going to be saved by his good works. Can you be saved by your good works? You should be nodding your head no. <laughs> no, you can't be saved by your good works. Is that what he's doing? Is Nehemiah our confused leader? No, I don't think so. Then what could he be doing? Why would he say this? I think it's actually an act of faith. How could this be an act of faith? Think for a moment. How could this be an act of faith by him? I think it's this. I think Nehemiah believes that God rewards generosity. Now, not saving. I, it's not going to save me. But does God reward our generosity? Is that a biblical idea? Absolutely. 
Let me read to you Philippians 4. Philippians 4 is kind of like we read, we preached through this book some time ago. But um, Paul's like writing this letter to this church in Philippi saying, hey, thanks for your generosity. He says a bunch of other things, but he says, thanks for your generosity. This is in chapter 4, verse 15. He said to the church at Philippi, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my need once and again. Now, here's the key line here. Not that I seek the gift, Paul says, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Or that could be translated, I seek the profit that accrues to your account. Now, that, those are financial. Those are accounting terms, aren't they? What is he talking about? What account is he talking about? Your account in heaven. God actually rewards generosity done here in heaven. And he was reminding them of that. Nehemiah is saying the same thing there. So don't misunderstand. This is not salvation by works. This is saying, he's saying, this is memoirs. He's saying, God, remember what I did. So we can say the same. Okay, so now we're to the third point. Nehemiah is generous, but what does it practically look like? Okay, so we, we had the fear of God, drove him to good stewardship. Good stewardship led to generosity. And then our third is hospitality. Good stewardship results in hospitality. Look at verse 16. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land. Pause there. Why is he telling us about no land? I think part of the reason is, is like the Levites. Kids, have you ever heard of the Levites? It's one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So God apportioned out all the land of Israel, the promised land, to each tribe. And he comes to the very last tribe, comes to the Levites, and he says, I got nothing for you. This is odd. They're the people. They're the servants of God. He gave land to everybody else except the Levites. Now, does he not love the Levites? No. The reason is, he told the other 11 tribes, you bring offerings to me, God, and it's going to provide for the Levites. Now, one reason he might have done this is so the Levites would pay attention to serving him and not worry about their land. Right? And so he still does that. That in an ideal situation, people he sets apart, they can spend their full time doing the work of the Lord, and they don't have to think about what I was then, about losing my job and IT and all that stuff. I'm very thankful I did my two careers side by side and not on top of each other. It's very nice to do one thing at a time. And so here Nehemiah says, I acquired no land. I didn't come to Jerusalem to, to make an empire, right? He, he had plenty of opportunity to grab land like the rest of the rich people were, he actually ended that, didn't he, last week? He said, stop that. Give all the land back. You're taking advantage of these people. He was there to rebuild a wall. That's important to note. All right, what else is there? 16. We acquired no land. All my servants, we were gathered there for the work. Okay, so we already looked at what his dinner party looked like. 150 people. Officials, besides them, those who came from the nations to him. I hesitated using the word hospitality to title this point, because some of you, when you hear that, think like Martha Stewart dinner party, not what I'm talking about, or Southern Living dinner party. No. <clears throat> what I mean is just opening up your home. Like you feed your family, and so hospitality is letting someone else sit at the table, and you just feed them the same stuff you're going to feed. You have to make a little more maybe, but you're just feeding them the same thing, right? Letting them into your world. That's what I mean by hospitality. This is an important biblical term. Did you know any men who aspire to be elders? It's one of the attributes, the qualifications to be an elder. Did you know that? 
It says that in 1 Timothy. He must be hospitable. He must be hospitable. Sometimes you think that's maybe ladies who do the hospitality because you've been you connected to Martha Stewart. No, hospitality, a man who opens his home to other people, opens his dinner table to other people. Nehemiah was doing that. Now, I'm not encouraging you to invite 150 people over for dinner. That was Nehemiah. Different situation. And then you want to kill an ox, which will be good. Now, we don't know. It at least says that nine out of the ten days doesn't have a bunch of wine. Right? So, I'm going to make that for a plug for, yeah, just have a, an average meal. You know, people would be delighted with peanut butter and jelly at your table. Because they want to spend time with you. It's really true. People are delighted just to spend time with people. Nehemiah opened his home to many people. So again, the relationship between hospitality and stewardship, think of it. If your house is on loan from God, then you ask questions like, God, who do you want to eat at this house of yours? Who do you want to eat at this house of yours? Because it's God's. All right, I made up a really silly illustration, but it makes a point, so just bear with me. All right, so um, I know all the adults know when you're at the airport, you're walking along, and there's these, you know, nice big glass doors that say, you know, club for, you know, executive premium platinum members of some airline club, right? You remember those? I've never been in one because I'm not one of those members, but I'm sure they're pretty nice in there. All right, so you're walking through the airport, and you are a member of that club, okay? And you walk up to the club door, and there's a sign on the door that says, closed, only open to manager's immediate family. You're like, what in the world? The manager decided, I'm just going to keep this place for me and my immediate family. You knock on the glass door, he opens it up, and you say, what's the deal, man? I am a card-carrying member of platinum, gold, super-duper member of this airline company. What are you doing? Well, I, I just, this, I, I've really made this a nice place. I'd like it to be for just me and my family. And you're like, sir, that, this place does not belong to you. This belongs to the airline. You can't do that. You're just the manager of it. You are a steward. We're a steward. Our homes don't belong to us. We, we don't have the right to put up a sign that says, this is only for me and my immediate family. Right? Because it belongs. Now, there's not people walking around with cards that get to come in your door. Oh, it's actually even harder than that. Look what Jesus does. What kind of people did Jesus eat with? The, the Son of God, the great and, and awesome God who came to earth. Of anyone who should be eating with the dignitaries, it was him. Who did he eat with? Who was at his table? We find this in Matthew 9. It says, And so Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. Reclined at table with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when he, being Jesus, heard it, he said these profound words. Those who are well, you've probably heard this before. Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. You see, it's not the platinum gold super members of the club that get in the door. It's the sinners. There's people that God has put around you that might be very far from God, but close to you. And God might just want them to eat at your dinner table. 
as we wrap up, I want to zoom out again. <clears throat> Look at, so Nehemiah had care for the people. He didn't put taxes on them. He had compassion for them. I want to look again at Christ for a moment. Mark 10.45 says, For the Son of Man came uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Jesus gave us such an example. Jesus, Nehemiah prepared meals for hundreds out of his own pocket, of his own expense. He paid for this meal, bought a bunch of oxen and sheep and birds, right? Jesus prepared a meal for millions out of his own expense. What did it cost him? Not oxen, not sheep, not birds. His blood. You know, we're about to enjoy the Lord's Supper. Another meal, a very generous meal. A meal given by Christ at a great, great cost. Philippians 2 says we should have his attitude. You see, as we understand his generosity, it will teach us to be generous. When you understand you're saved by his blood, not, not your generosity, not your good works, it frees us up. It compels us to be generous with our time, as, as Todd said in his prayer, with our time, our talents, and our treasure. It all belongs to God. And you know what? I guarantee you that Nehemiah was far happier than Artaxerxes. Don't you think so? His 270 tons of gold, 1,200 tons of silver. You see, giving away, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Many wealthy people finally learn this. They buy all the big stuff and they realize, okay, that was, I'm, I'm, there's no more fun out of that. They start giving it away. They've even found that it's more pleasurable to give away philanthropic people. You see, many wealthy people do that, and they're just doing it for their own pleasure. Because they realize there's actually more pleasure in giving than receiving. But I'm so thankful that Christ wants me to dine with him forever. And you. He wants to dine forever with you at his table. Sinners like us. He led in the worst low life. <laughs> he makes churches out of them. Praise God that this is our, our Lord. He's so generous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you're so generous. Thank you that you've prepared a meal and that you've invited us all in. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We would not know to fear you if we did not have your word. I pray that we would have an authentic, a functional, not theoretical, theology with a great and awesome God who is omnipotent, omnipresent. Lord, we pray that you would impact the real way we live our lives. And we would enjoy the joy of being generous, of hospitality, of opening our table to others. And that in it, you would bring salvation. That we would get to see before our very tables, you saving our neighbors and friends. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.